You're listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Liz Maxwell. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. This is your host, Lindsay Smalling. Today's episode is a live recording from a SOCAP 365 event that took place in Seattle in July of 2018. The topic for this conversation is pay for success, what's brilliant and what's broken. If you haven't heard of pay for success, you may have heard of social impact bonds or outcomes-based financing. All of these refer to new ways of providing funding for social services, such as housing, education, health, prison reform, that prioritize outcomes and results and attach funding to those outcomes. This can be a confusing and somewhat controversial topic, but it also has the potential to drive a lot more private capital into solutions that work. The panel you're about to hear from is full of smart people that are so well-spoken about the challenges and opportunities of pay for success. I know that you'll find their conversation approachable and a really interesting glimpse into ways that government is innovating to provide better services and more effectively use our tax dollars. Lauren Fulton from the Corporation for Supportive Housing is our very capable moderator, and she is joined by Andrew Lofton, Executive Director of the Seattle Housing Authority, Tina Walla, Director of Innovation and Performance at the City of Seattle, and Ian Galloway, who joined us in Seattle from the Portland branch of the San Francisco Federal Reserve. This event was hosted by Impact Hub Seattle in the heart of the city, Pioneer Square. And this is the first of a three-part series that we'll be doing at Impact Hub Seattle and sharing through this podcast. We also have a full one-day SOCAP 365 event scheduled in Seattle in early 2019. So I encourage you to sign up for our newsletter at socialcapitalmarkets.net to learn about SOCAP 365 events near you, hear the latest updates on our flagship conference, SOCAP 18, which is coming up October 23rd through the 26th, and to find additional articles and information all focused on the intersection of money and meaning. So let's jump right into the panel. Good morning. My name is Lauren Fulton. I am a senior program manager at the Corporation for Supportive Housing. That is a national nonprofit community development finance institute. Uh, But within that, I actually work on our impact investment team. And our team uh, is both an investor on particular pay for success initiatives, as well as an intermediary. And if you don't know what that term is, you will find out fairly soon. Um, And I also lead some of our work around pay for success, technical assistance, and transaction structuring. So I have been steeped in this in the supportive housing space. um, But prior to this, I also worked in London at Social Finance UK and was involved in uh, a number of different projects and social impact bonds there as well. So that's kind of my background here. And I'll say a little bit more about how we're going to structure this and how this panel will run. But first, I wanted to let the other panelists introduce themselves. Good morning. Uh, my name is Tina Walla, 
and I lead a unit in the city of Seattle called Innovation and Performance. We are a dedicated unit within city government that works with city departments using data and design to creatively solve problems. That can be through human-centered design, uh, through data analytics, through performance management, but we really um, just get excited about working with our colleagues in city government, the 12,000 folks who run city government to um, help them with the challenges they face. Uh, I'm really excited about today's conversation because uh, this is my second stint in local government. Nine years ago, I worked for Michael Bloomberg as a policy advisor in his office and helped to architect the, the first social impact bond that we had in the U.S., which was at Rikers Island. So I'll be sharing some thoughts on that, but really excited to be here. Good morning. My name is Andrew Lofton. I'm the executive director of the Sale Housing Authority. Um, the Sale Housing Authority um, provides uh, housing to almost 18,000 households in the city of Seattle, um, uh, 35,000 individuals, um, a combination of public housing as well as um, housing choice vouchers. And, and we are in just about every neighborhood uh, in the city. It's a pleasure to be here today on the concept of pay for success, um, really the concept of um, innovative financing for uh, support to low-income um, individuals is a critical um, need and a critical question for us. And this, as much as a panelist, as a participant, learning about that is kind of where the space that, that I'm in. And, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation more than a presentation. Good morning, everybody. My name is Ian Galloway. Um, I flew in from the far off land of Portland, Oregon this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm based in the, the Portland branch of the San Francisco Federal Reserve. Uh, I do a combination of, of community outreach. So I work with uh, community groups and banks and foundations and policymakers across the state of Oregon. Uh, and I also run our Center for Community Development Investments, which is sort of an internal think tank that uh, focuses on financial innovation in the social sector. Um, we publish things, uh, give presentations, research uh, sort of cutting-edge uh, investment vehicles and, and approaches. Uh, I, this is a shameless plug, and I apologize. Uh, we published this book uh, last year. It's free, uh, so I'm not making money off of this. Uh, if you go to investinresults.org, uh, it's called What Matters Investing in Results. Uh, it's chock full of uh, really interesting perspectives from people across the field uh, on outcomes-based funding and financing and the pros and cons and sort of uh, the nuance of it. So if this uh, conversation inspires you, I'd encourage you to go to uh, investinresults.org and order one of these books. And as I said, it's, it's free. So uh, thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. I think part of the uh, great, I guess, experience that we have here is the diverse experience on the panel with pay for success and social impact bonds. And I imagine that that kind of mirrors where our audience is in terms of your own experience with pay for success, whether it's coming to this completely new um, or having been involved before. So I just wanted a quick show of hands on who has heard of pay for success before and who has heard of social impact bonds. So something we're going to talk about too. Great. And uh, who was completely new to this? Great. Few brave souls admitting it. 
Um, that's fantastic. So we are going to do pretty much uh, what it says on the title. We're going to spend a little bit of time actually defining our terms and talking about pay for success and social impact bonds as we understand them. Um, we're then going to talk about what's brilliant with them and then spend a little bit of time on what's broken or what's challenging um, in the space and really wanted to get into as well what the opportunities are for Seattle um, and hope that that leads into some great discussions that happen after this as well. So um, this is going to be a discussion. So panelists, please do feel free to kind of jump in after uh, after each of us has spoken and, and we'll make sure to make this a conversation. So we will start with the kind of concept and terminology. So what is pay for success in particular? We have one slide, which I like to view as the simplest way of describing this. I'll say everyone describes it slightly differently in this space. So I think some explanations work for some people and others work for other people. So I'll give this one a shot and see how you feel about it. Um, so I describe pay for success or social impact bonds as a combination of two different innovations. The first is actually on the bottom of the slide is a pay for success contract. It's also called an outcomes based contract. It's a kind of variation of a performance based contract, which we'll talk a little bit more about. But basically, this is any contract which is not paid for on a fee for service basis and is instead is paid for on the basis of outcomes if and when they are achieved. So to use an example from supportive housing, in the supportive housing world, you might have a government who pays right now for a supportive housing service, like assertive community treatment that goes alongside housing or tenancy supports. That's a fee-for-service model. To move it to an outcomes-based model, you could pay only when participants in the program have maintained stable housing for a year. Okay, so that's the kind of outcome that is of most interest to government, and that's what they are then intending to pay for. So that is a really nice bringing together of sort of government accountability, paying for what you want, making sure a program works. So if you're a government in the room, you're thinking, this sounds fantastic. If you're a service provider in the room, you're probably thinking, hold on a minute, <laughs> I still have to pay my staff, deliver this up front, and not to mention I'm going to be needing to do this 12 months before I even know if I'm going to get reimbursed, never mind how long it takes to measure it and evaluate it and come back to me with payment. So there's an upfront working capital issue. And then there's a risk issue. Because for most nonprofit service dividers and I think service providers, and I think across the service provision space as a whole, data and outcomes are fairly new. Um, I think there's been a big push towards it in the last 10 years, but many providers aren't fully sure of what they're delivering. And so there's a big financial risk for them to be taking on if there's a contract that's paid for on the basis of outcomes if they don't know their own track record. And that is what the second element of this, the upfront working capital, is intended to do. This is saying investors come in, impact investors, socially motivated investors will say, service provider, we are going to give you the money to deliver this upfront so you don't have to worry about how you're going to pay for it. And we will take on some or all of the risk that you will achieve these outcomes and we will be reimbursed by government. So that is what it is in a nutshell. It's meant to be a fairly simple solution to this issue of growing, increasing interest in outcomes-based contracts and the kind of problem that that presents for service providers. There are many other things that come out of it as well, and so that's why there's so many different ways to explain this. Um, but to me, that's the kind of clearest. 
So um, I wanted to uh, start by inviting Ian in particular, but others as well, to weigh in on if that kind of explanation resonates with what you've heard or if you, um, how you think that that uh, is similar or different to other kind of contracting or financing innovations in the field. Sure. So, uh, no, I think that was a, a perfect uh, a description of pay for success and, and sort of the, the, uh, the pros and cons of, of using the, the tool. Uh, just maybe a couple thoughts on on where it fits into sort of the larger contracting conversation um, and, and why we would choose to use any of these contracts, frankly. Uh, I think sometimes it's important to, to start with the problem that we're trying to solve. And in this case, I think the problem is, is relatively straightforward, but we don't, we don't talk about it as much as we should in the social sector. Uh, and that is that sometimes things don't work, and that's okay. Uh, and people don't like to pay for things that don't work. So those are the sort of twin related challenges that we're trying to solve with all of these different kinds of, of contracting approaches. Uh, so the way that I would sort of think about it, and I'm sorry, I should have uh, provided a slide to, to reflect this, um, but there's basically five different uh, types of, of contracts that you can implement based on where you are in the production of the outcome process. Uh, so the first is, uh, is basically inputs. Right, it's it's staff, it's time, it's uh, it's the capital expense of, of building a building, whatever it is. Uh, it's the inputs, the fee for service stuff. Uh, very conventional contracting, very straightforward. You hope that if you put all the inputs into the mix, you get the thing that you want at the end of the day. So that's sort of far end of the spectrum. Then you have uh, sort of process. Uh, so it's not just about what goes in, but how it goes in. Uh, so that's the recipe that you're selling to funders. Uh, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and we're going to do it this way. Uh, and that's supposed to give funders a little bit more confidence that uh, you know what you're doing and you know how to deploy your resources. So I would say that that's kind of on the, the fee-for-service side of the, the contract spectrum. Then you sort of switch to more of the performance-based contract uh, side of the spectrum. Uh, and, and you move from process and inputs uh, to outputs. So... We served this number of people. So we did our thing, we followed the recipe, uh, we threw, re threw resources at it, uh, and we served 100 people uh, in high need as we promised to. So that is, an, that is a performance-based sort of uh, check-in moment. You have served people. I know how well you serve those people is still an open question, but you could design a contract around outputs. Then you have sort of the quality of the outputs. Uh, and this is... Uh, sort of the value-based payment conversation uh, for those of you who, who are in the healthcare world. Uh, so it's not just about providing good healthcare, it's about providing good quality healthcare uh, in a way that we think will improve people's health in the long run. Still not quite an outcome, but uh, definitely performance-based, uh, definitely outcomes-based uh, or outputs-based. Uh, with a quality sort of spin on it. And then finally, the fifth and far end of the spectrum, and again, sorry, I, I should have a slide here, uh, is outcomes. So what do you really want? You want, you know, to, to take a, uh, a chronic homelessness example, uh, you want people with, who are suffering from chronic homelessness to be stably homed, homed, it's early, I was up at 4.15, <laughs> stably housed uh, for a long period of time uh, so they can back on their feet and they don't uh, fall back into uh, unnecessary services and sort of back into the churn of the system. So that's what you really want, is people permanently removed from that chronic homelessness 
population and on a more stable trajectory. Uh, so that's an outcome, and you could design an outcome-based contract around that. So that's sort of the spectrum of different types of contracts that you can design depending upon uh, what is important to you. The part, and I know we're short on time, and I don't want to, to spend so much time on this, but the part that I think is super important uh, that we uh, don't, again, talk about enough is this performance risk and, and how important that is to uh, adequately compensate for. So the theory here is that if you are paying for inputs and layering on additional process requirements, that you can fundamentally change the underlying risk of the intervention. Right? You're saying, if you follow the recipe, we're going to increase the chance that your thing is going to work. Or if we layer on compliance requirements or reporting requirements, auditing, all of that is designed to increase the likelihood that your thing is going to work. That's this side of the spectrum. An outcomes-based contract says, we're not going to try to change the underlying risk profile of your intervention. We're going to pay for the thing that we want and not pay for it if you can't produce it. You have to go out into the world and figure out how to cobble together the right set of interventions to produce the result that will get you paid. That is a different, fundamentally different approach to dealing with performance risk than fee-for-service input-based contracting, which historically is how we've paid for social services. That's great. So that's a little bit about sort of pay for success versus certainly performance-based contracting. Um, as Ian said, if you're in the healthcare space and you work on value-based purchasing, this is, again, very similar to the kind of pay-for-performance aspect of that um, value-based purchasing. So just to ask, ask Andrew in terms of someone who's in the kind of housing world and in a contracting space as well, does this kind of resonate with different contracting conversations or financing conversations that, that you have been having? Um, oh, absolutely. And I think um, from a contracting point of view, from a government point of view, the, the um, only thing I would, the one thing I would uh, underscore in um, Ian's remarks um, is the idea that, you know, government, you know, comes from it or contractors come from it um, from a perspective of wanting some certainty um, uh, and to mitigate that risk. Um, so we, we are much further on the left-hand side because we're, we're all focused on um, we want to make sure that this dollar that we are um, spending um, gets the um, outcomes that we want. And, and it's not so much outcomes, gets the performance that we want. Um, and we haven't really had the conversation about what the outcome should be um, explicitly. I think implicitly, um, from a from a perspective of of, of the Sale Housing Authority, um, we want um, um, our goal is to get people out of our housing. Right? It is not an important aspect of getting into our housing. Um, what we really want is people to leave our housing because that means that they're successful. I mean, our Un fundamental underlying theme are, are uh, to create opportunities for self-sufficiency for folks to improve their lot. And if they're successful and they're able to um, uh, earn enough dollars so that they don't need our housing, um, that frees up dollars that we can serve another family. Um, so the outcome for us is better economic um, um, success for the household and the family so that they're not needing our housing. To pay for that, though, takes some patient capital um, because it's not going to um, 
um, turn around overnight. There are barriers, there are reasons why um, individuals are in the situation that they're in. Um, and having to overcome those uh, and invest in that um, takes time um, and takes a lot of resources and energy. Um, and that takes um, the risk out a longer period of time that um, really challenges uh, the contractual relationship with um, uh, any individual um, entity that you're working with. Um, ergo, the lack of certainty, ergo, we spend a lot of time on um, reports and um, uh, performance measures and you know, making sure that you're following the process which gives a greater uh, per uh, proportion of the uh, ability for that outcome to be um, realized um, because we're focused on the more certain, um, the less risky um, in investment. So um, it's a paradigm shift in many ways to try to move from that, um, we got to make sure that this is done right um, because we're not certain about what the outcome is going to be, mm -hmm. um, to allowing that to just occur um, and um, um, back away from it. So um, our um, um, efforts um, have to change a little bit and move away from that and, and focus more on what is it that we really want to uh, accomplish and how, how can we be more explicit about the outcomes that we, um, um, we want to achieve um, rather than the inputs that we want to have to go into the process. You're listening to Money and Meaning. You can find out more about SOCAP at our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net, with a list of our upcoming events, including our annual conference at the Fort Mason Center in San Francisco, October 23rd to 26, 2018. So as you're probably hearing, there is a lot of this which is focused on, to be honest, good service design. So thinking about what are the outcomes? Let's be intentional about what it is that we think we can produce from this particular intervention model or this particular service. Um, and that is really at the heart of what I would consider a pay-for-success design, um, is really having a robust service model and then thinking about, okay, well, how is it contracted differently on the basis of outcomes and how is it then financed? Um, but it really starts with that data and it starts with defining things, which I think is kind of ironic because as a field, we are pretty bad at defining a lot of our terms. And uh, we had some conversations about uh, how confusing it is in the impact investment space. And I should also note, pay for success is generally considered a kind of subset, if you will, of impact investment. Um, so it, it's a small part of, uh, of that field. Um, but there are many organizations here that are kind of uh, intermediaries, there are uh, people providing technical assistance, there are investors, there are providers, government, all of those. And it can be a little bit confusing and a little bit like alphabet soup trying to work out what everyone is doing. Um, so the only thing I'm going to kind of say on that with pay for success and social impact bonds um, is that I have noticed in the U.S. that they are 
generally used kind of interchangeably um, as terms, pay for success and social impact bonds. In the UK, and I think to some extent here, pay for success has sometimes been referred to as that actual outcomes-based contract component. And sometimes people use social impact bond when they include the external finance as well. But for the most part, I think most people, I guess, in the US probably use them pretty interchangeably, um, I would imagine. Great. And the only other thing to say before we move on to what's brilliant with this is that uh, there are over 20 pay for success projects um, in the US right now. There are over 100 globally. Um, they cover all different uh, service models, all different sectors. Um, obviously, we've talked a little bit about the homelessness and supportive housing space, as that's more where some of our interests lie. Um, but they are uh, across a whole range of different areas. So this is feeding into a much larger um, picture uh, with the, within the sector as well. Okay, so let's move on to what is brilliant about them. And I'm going to ask Tina for the kind of government perspective here on what draws government to these. Um, but first, I just kind of want to acknowledge as well that of all the people I know in Seattle, the couple who kind of work within the pay for success space or have worked within the sector before seem to be in or near your office. So we have certainly someone who I worked previously with at Social Finance, who might still be in the room, um, as well as a government performance fellow who has been uh, working with you as well. So there's definitely a draw for your office in particular, I think. We all have a shared, uh, we, we all nerd out on thinking about how to, in general, shift the city towards more outcomes focus and outcomes-based management. And so, and I would also say it's, we're coalescing. There's, there's a crew of us and we want to make one of these happen. So... I'll put that out there. Great. So, yeah, how do you feel that government benefits from undertaking a project like this? Or what kind of draws government to it? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, so uh, my my direct experience with Pay for Success comes from the Rikers Island Social Impact Bond, uh, in which a promising service was provided to 4,000 adolescents, incarcerated adolescents, who otherwise would not be provided with services while they're at Rikers. So a service was provided to them uh, at zero cost to taxpayers. Results were not produced. The outcomes we wanted to see were not produced. And so then the services stopped. And that is, in a nutshell, the, the, the deal worked exactly as designed. It was, it was a great application of a social impact bond or pay-for-success model because we tried something. It didn't work, so then we stopped it, and taxpayers didn't pay a single dime, right? So for me, what I think, I think there's, there's, we could talk all day, really, about what I think is brilliant about these deals, but I'll highlight a couple key components, the first of which is it shifts risk away from taxpayers. So by leveraging private investment to pursue some of these exciting opportunities um, in social services around things like homelessness, for example, uh, we're able to try things that otherwise, in a constrained budget environment, government can't. And I'm speaking as somebody who right now we're going through some tough budget cuts. And, and so that private investment coming in to, to support uh, innovation and the pursuit of better outcomes is huge. Um, another key component, and Lauren touched on this a bit with service providers, but pay for success deals, um, this isn't the first thing you would think of, but they build capacity within government for data collection and analysis, for evaluation, for outcomes-based management, 
right? Uh, when I worked in the Bloomberg administration, I had been a consultant beforehand, but I'll tell you, I put those consulting skills to work with doing cost-benefit analyses and doing all sorts of analytics because that's what these deals require. And so for government managers who have seen their training budgets decimated in the recession and never restored, but also for service provider staff, as Lauren mentioned, this is huge. We're building the expertise and the capacity of those who are making uh, social impact work happen in our communities, and that is not insignificant. I think that's really important. Another thing that I think is so exciting is that too often in government, and many of you may, may notice this as constituents, we are reacting to a crisis. And, and homelessness is certainly something that in Seattle, in Pioneer Square, we can think of as an example. But how powerful is it that pay for success allows us to shift and be proactive about prevention, right? And in, in some of the deals, that's exactly what they're doing, is they're trying to prevent a future outcome. At Rikers Island, we were trying to prevent these young men from coming back into Rikers Island. Uh, I think we can all agree that um, thinking about preventing something rather than reacting to it is more strategic, it's smarter, it's, it's, there's, it's likely going to be more cost-effective uh, or cheaper, and you, you may just get better outcomes for it. And again, in government right now, that's a luxury because we're trying to keep up with the, with the pressing needs of our vulnerable residents, but that focus on prevention is it's not insignificant, it's, it's major. Uh, the last thing I mentioned about what's so brilliant about pay-for-success models is, um, so in government we talk a lot about partnerships and what makes for good partnership, particularly cross-sector. What I think is so exciting about pay-for-success specifically is that it is a partnership where you have the partners at the table, it is, it is mandatory, it's critical that you have shared values, that you have shared trust, everyone's putting some skin in the game. Everyone's got some risk on the table in different ways. Um, but you're also, it's a partnership based on a common definition of success. So that point, point that Lauren was making, I want to underscore, I want to like triple underline it. In New York, we said we want to reduce recidivism by 10%. That mattered for a whole bunch of reasons. And if you're interested in nerding out on it, we can talk through, you know, how many bed, jail beds that would, uh, would mean that we didn't need, which translated into units so we could shut down and uh, save on labor costs. But just being able to get everyone, the investors, the evaluators, the academics, the service provider, government, the budget office, to get everyone around the table and say, this is the outcome we want to see. This is our shared definition of success. That's huge. And that allows for this partnership to move forward. Again, with everybody having a lot on the table, you have that North Star to go to. And so it, um, it, it just changes... The, the relationships that exist and really allow for exciting things to happen in these models. I would completely agree with that, the kind of importance of partnership, um, which I think we'll continue to talk about. And I would just say some of the kind of unintended consequences of pay-for-success projects usually end up being around systems change in communities. And part of that is exactly what Tina is saying about government is learning from this. Provider Providers are building their own capacity around data and analysis. and and also everyone's coming together. And when you have people in the same room, suddenly you can kind of resolve problems that you never really knew existed or you thought only you had to deal with and not that other part of government. Um, so that I think is a, a huge part of this. And I, I've heard that recently um, from sites even like the Denver Social Impact Bonds where they were saying, just bringing people together in partnership is already a benefit no matter what the kind of outcomes are. So that's great. 
Um, so then I want to ask Ian a little bit about from the investor perspective, and I know we have quite a few wealth managers in the room today. So from the investor perspective, what do you think is attractive about this and what should investors be looking for here? Yeah, so I, I, um, I completely agree with your characterization that the pay for success and SIPs are uh, right now at least a small part of the larger impact investing world. Um, personally, I would like to see that that grow uh, because, and I'll, and I'll uh, explain why. Um, I think one of the, the fundamental limitations of impact investing historically um, is that your returns can be and often are divorced from the impact that you're making. So I think impact investors are drawn to deals, to companies, to opportunities where they can make a rate of return that meets their particular needs and creates impact. Uh, the challenge becomes, in my view, that down the road, if that company or investment morphs into something that is less impactful but more profitable, the impact investor actually makes more money. So the incentives are totally out of whack. Uh, so, I mean, if you think about, you know, investing in a fair trade coffee company that aligns with your values, you're excited to support this company, then it's bought by, uh, you know, Unilever. And suddenly, you know, they need to significantly increase the, the volume of coffee that they're producing to put in their pods, right? Uh, so suddenly the fair trade aspect of this company falls by the wayside. But as an investor in this, in this small, originally fair trade company, uh, you make a killing because suddenly you were bought by this giant company that, that is willing to pay a premium to have access to your farmers. Uh, so that's a case where you were brought to the deal for the right reasons as an impact investor, uh, but unfortunately you were rewarded um, as impact decreased and profitability increased. What I like about pay for success and SIPs and sort of these outcomes-based financing opportunities is it marries impact to return. So basically, if the nonprofit service provider does not deliver the outcome that they're contractually obligated to deliver in the outcomes-based contract, they don't get paid, which means you don't get paid as their investor. If they are successful in delivering the outcome, they are paid. And in many cases, there's a graduated scale. So the more successful they are, the, and this was the case in, in the Rikers project uh, with Goldman Sachs' investment, uh, the lower that, that recidivism rate went, the more money Goldman Sachs could have made on that project. Uh, so it aligns the, the sort of financial incentive with the impact incentive, I think, in a really elegant way, uh, which makes me really excited about this uh, for impact investors that want to diversify their, their opportunities beyond companies and, and, and other investments that, that, again, have this, uh, um, this impact return uh, sort of a, a, a challenge that, uh, that's out of whack. That's great. And I think, you know, we had, uh, when we were talking previously, described it as potentially the kind of natural conclusion of impact investment in a way that this is truly, as you were saying, both financial and social return as one within pay for success projects. So you would think that there would be a lot more interest and we're going to come on to in a second why maybe that hasn't materialized so far. Um, but I also wanted to give uh, Andrew a chance to, to join in on any of this. We've talked clearly about partnership working and how that is brilliant coming out of this, um, as well as a lot of the data work that lays the groundwork for this. Um, is there anything you'd like to add to those observations? Only that um, one of the uh, critical pieces of uh, the partnership um, angle is um, 
articulating and aligning um, the uh, strategies and outcomes. Um, uh, we, we, we have, a, we've been programmed to think about outcomes and think about um, our performance differently um, and narrowly. And um, this is an opportunity to, to step back and think about it in a different way, in a much more comprehensive way. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, we're doing a project up the hill here, Yesler Terrace, which um, we're re redeveloping, um, transforming a community that was uh, uh, 560 units of public housing to up to 5,000 units of mixed income housing. Um, and it, if you're in Seattle and you've seen the progress of that um, project, you can see the physical transformation happening right before your eyes, uh, which has been very successful. Um, and we think that will be successful. The, the uh, um, physical um, plant will be um, more modern. Um, it will be safer, healthier, um, full of pedestrian amenities, the type of neighborhood that everybody would want to see. Um, and from that perspective, it looks very um, progressive and very successful. Um, from our perspective, though, the success of Yesler isn't in the physical uh, transformation, which is necessary and is good. Um, but it's in what happens to the low-income residents who now are, are part of that community. Um, and if they, aren't, if they don't change their status, um, all we've done is put pretty um, pieces of wood and metal around their existing circumstance and what has changed for them. So now aligning what will be successful for that group of that population within that community um, with a partner to say, how do we do that becomes the challenge. Um, one of the um, uh, efforts that we have is, for example, um, health outcomes. Um, uh, and, and with this transformation, one of our goals is to make sure that our residents um, uh, have at least the same um, health outcomes or the same health stability as the general population. Um, so the um, low-income uh, individuals and in our residents have a higher degree of, of diabetes, a higher degree of, of, of some chronic um, uh, medical issues. Um, and so one of our challenges is how do we provide better health outcomes for them with this redevelopment. Trying to get that um, outcome uh, embedded into some sort of contractual relationship becomes really difficult. Particularly um, as, we, um, as we get into this, um, it forces us to get much more data driven. It forces us to get much more focused on um, kind of what is driving some of the, the issues that we are facing. Um, and as we were looking at the health um, um, area, um, you know, it became pretty clear to us as we were wor working with health, um, uh, the health uh, industry um, that part of health outcomes is the, is the environment that people are in. I mean, a significant part of the health outcomes are the environment that people live in. Um, so how do we translate that into an um, outcome-based performance contract to... Um, uh, further the goals that we have of, of better health outcomes for our residents. So it becomes a challenge to sort through all the various um, um, partners that have to be um, coordinating their efforts and cooperating 
to achieve something that is seemingly pretty um, clear and, and pretty easy. And that becomes um, a, a huge challenge to sort through all of the, the various um, connections to make that possible. You're listening to Money and Meaning. I'm Lindsay Smalling, and you can find out more about the SOCAP conference, SOCAP 365, and sign up for our newsletter at socialcapitalmarkets.net. Yeah, so that actually perfectly uh, illustrates, I think, a point that I wanted to make, which is a lot of the aspects that we find are brilliant are also aspects that we find are challenges. So as we segue into the what is broken part of this, um, I think uh, I just wanted to add that I'm not sure that actually pay for success is broken, to use that word, as much as misapplied or misunderstood or overpromised, certainly. Um, but that a lot of it is for a lot of the reasons that make it great. So to start with that challenge around uh, if you're going to be defining a contract based on outcomes, you have to really know what that outcome is, as well as what is the track record of service providers in achieving it? What should be achievable based on national evidence base or other evidence bases? Um, and how much value does that bring to government as an end payer, whether that's a kind of tangible, cashable benefit or if it's a value placed on actually reaching a particular population? And so, as you can probably imagine, a lot of the work that happens on these is actually that upfront defining of the intervention model, the success metric, that metric that you're actually paying on the basis of if outcomes are achieved, what success should actually look like, whether uh, this can be contracted fully on the basis of outcomes, is that evidence base actually there for it, making sure that we're not setting up anyone to fail. Um, if I, by kind of adjusting risk thresholds or anything else that seems like uh, there's just not the evidence base there to be able to use this contracting method. And so within the pay for su success space, if you've heard about feasibility studies, that's what these do. They are actually a kind of six to nine month period, sometimes even longer, of communities working to understand all of those different aspects before they even say, okay, we're ready to sign up to this and we're ready to do that. But if you say to anyone, it's going to take six to nine months before we're sure if this project is going to be up and running, that feels like a very long timeline. And I think one of the challenges is both getting that right, the kind of work that goes into it, but also the timeline that we have for these to develop and why they've been taking so much longer than people expected to get the investable proposition in place, never mind the finance part of it as well. So that's kind of what I would say is a big kind of challenge in the field and maybe not quite what's broken, but what is uh, certainly slowing it down in terms of development is actually getting the development of the investable projects ready um, to be contracted in this way. Um, so I wanted to, again, kind of open it up. Tina, do you see other challenges in this space? In some of these, and again, I'll go back to the Rikers example, we're at the end of the day trying to change human behavior. We're trying to help our sort of fellow residents, fellow man, change how they make decisions to get to better outcomes. So on Rikers Island, um, we were with these adolescent uh, young men. We were um, using moral recognition therapy, which seeks to increase moral reasoning to help them understand um, the consequences of their actions so that then when they went back into the community, when they were released, for them to think about um, making better decisions. Now, picture, if you will, um, 
asking these young men who are in a in an intense uh, environment. They're incarcerated on Rikers Island, which uh, if you've ever opened the New York Times, there's always stories about what Rikers is like. This uh, intervention sought to um, have these young men uh, make themselves vulnerable, be more compassionate, uh, to, to recognize the impact of their consequences. And I'll tell you, that's not on the path to survival in Rikers, okay? They were, to be, to, to survive Rikers, you gotta be tough, you have, to, you have to have a wall. Vulnerability is not a part of success in, an, in any, I would guess, criminal justice setting. But, but the thing was, this, this intervention, it was, there was a lot of evidence base behind it. It had been extensively researched in criminal justice settings. But I would argue maybe there's, a, there's, a, there's an issue about using it for young people that, right, we, maybe, maybe there could have been a better intervention. But at the end of the day, we're trying to change the behavior of people. And that's hard. Again, though, at zero cost to taxpayers, I think I think it's worth trying. Um, I'd also say, um, you know, this this reliance that we have on evidence, it's tough when you think about. Um, in this case, for example, uh, this social impact bond was born out of Mayor Bloomberg's Young Men's Initiative, which sought to address disparities facing Black and Latino young men in New York, which the disparities are were stark. Uh, Every time we would sit around the table, the mayor would just say, really? Is that really true that Latino men are 30 times more likely to be incarcerated in ours? You know, like there was a there was a shock factor. Now, there wasn't evidence base in any of these interventions about cultural competency. And I would argue that's important, right? Because we all come to the table with different cultural norms, different beliefs. And that's not something that I would argue there was a ton of evidence base on at the time. Let's hope that moving forward, we can incorporate that so that, again, and this is where human-centered design comes into play, let's design for the folks we're seeking to serve. Let's really think about what's going to help them, not what necessarily makes us, uh, you know, the the data nerds and academics happy. Um, And finally, I'd say... um, there's this balance, I think a lot of deals now that I've seen, I think they're doing a better job of this, but there's a balance of bringing in outside expertise, the investors, the evaluators, the academics, the service providers, and that expertise is hugely valuable, but you also have to remember what you have in the front line. So, so uh, this is my last Rikers reference. In Rikers at the time when, when this was introduced, violence was on the rise within the complex. Corrections officers knew that. They knew that, again, making yourself vulnerable when there's a chance you're going to get stabbed today, like, there's an issue with that. But the corrections officers weren't really involved, as I think maybe they should have been, in planning the intervention. And these are the folks who they know the folks they're serving. They know their environment. Um, And let's make sure that voice is there at the table the same way that investors' voices are there, same way evaluators' voices are there. So those are three things that, again, I I don't think it's broken to your point. I think it's just sometimes misapplied, but there's what I get excited about is at the end of the day as a taxpayer, I'm excited that my sort of government is thinking about how to be creative and how to how to address some of these challenges and I'm not paying for it, right? Like that, that I think is still a core part of the value proposition for me. So I think iteration on the model, I'm excited to see what comes. I agree. And I would say that, you know, it's a trope, but uh, if it was easy, it would have been done already, right? So there's a reason why these are kind of complicated to set up. Challenges that uh, I think in the context of the um, uh, social impact, um, pay for success um, ch- challenges that we face um, when we talk about evidence-based, um, 
it, when we talk about changing behavior, there's such an array, a large array of um, lovers that do that. Um, finding the the, the um, answer or the um, the actual evidence that proves this is the way to do it um, is a challenge. Um, the, another example I'll use, um, some of you may be familiar with Raj Chetty's work um, that talks about um, youth who l grow up in um, high, higher opportunity areas, do better um, um, as adults um, in education, uh, in employment, et cetera. So getting low-income individuals to live in higher opportunity areas would be a benefit to um, not only those families, but to the community um, as a whole. Um, so there's some evidence that suggests that that's good. What we don't know is what about that is good. Um, so why just in the high opportunity areas? What is it about high opportunity areas that um, drives that success? Um, and if we knew that, could we not export that to those areas that are not high opportunity areas and then folks who are living there get the same benefit? Um, but we don't know what that is. Um, we do know the outcomes of folks who live in high opportunity areas, and so trying to figure out how to move them there would be a good thing. So that's one issue. But the larger issue when you're talking about outcomes is what then can be replicated for not just the folks who move, but the folks who um, need that service no matter where they are. So getting the, the point of what is it that we're um, um, uh, designing um, is really uh, a, a big challenge. It's not that it's broken, but I don't think we've got, we've uh, we're sophisticated enough yet to be able to sort through the the variabilities that that creates. I think both of you have raised great points about the fact that these service models on their own are challenging. Never mind putting them into a new construct. Mm -hmm. um, but I did just want to uh, finish up this section by talking about. Uh, how how these are complex, potentially complicated structures as well, and how that might be challenging too. So I think I have one more slide with a graphic, um, which actually has more of the structure on it. So this, believe it or not, is is even more simplified than I think what what usually gets out there. Um, so you you might have heard again from the beginning. I was talking about pay for success as that combination of two different things intended to be a simple solution to a couple challenging issues. Um, but this is what it can end up looking like. Um, and this, again, is simplified version. So there's the kind of ends payer, which is generally who we call the, the entity that's paying for outcomes, in many cases government, and the service providers that are uh, directly kind of op diagonally opposite of them. And there's a performance-based or a pay-for-success contract between them, so focusing on outcomes. So that part should be familiar. There are the investors in the top right who are financing that up front. That part should be familiar. But what are on earth are these other two entities doing in here? So one is the intermediary. I mentioned intermediary at the beginning um, as a term that you might hear a lot here. Um, within the space, I think the intermediary does a couple different things. Uh, one, it can help to, believe it or not, simplify the structure if you have multiple investors and multiple service providers. So if you just have one contract between government and service provider, that's one thing. But if you're actually aggregating money from multiple investors and then distributing it to multiple providers, it can help to have an organization that actually plays that role. 
Um, so there's a kind of fiscal management piece within that. And then the second thing is actually that intermediaries uh, are oftentimes, though not always, used for performance management as well. So to be that kind of liaison between what are the service providers actually producing in terms of outcomes and how is that being communicated back to investors so they can be a little bit of an investor liaison too. So that's a little bit of a black box, but has been helpful in, in many uh, structures so far. And then oftentimes there's a third party evaluator who is actually looking at all those outcomes so that that doesn't have to be done by government or by service providers. It helps sometimes to have a neutral party. Local, usually local universities, in fact, play this role, which is a great use, I think, of, of bringing in local connections. But this is one structure. I think this, I might have called it traditional, but actually it could be termed intermediated um, social impact bond as well. There are many variations of this, but I think part of the difficulty is that when people come to pay for success, they're often presented with diagrams like this or even more complicated and think, what is going on? Uh, how on earth are we going to put this together? So Ian, is there anything else that you would want to say about the complexity that surrounds the actual structuring of these? So they can feel complicated and complex, and, and they are, but I would argue that that complexity is the price you pay for the certainty uh, that, that Andrew mentioned. If you want to know that something's going to work, uh, it requires building infrastructure into the system that is currently not there, and that's the root of a lot of the complexity. Um, but I think you can make a really compelling argument that the trade-off is worth it, uh, so I'd say it's not a broken component of pay for success. It's a uh, necessary evil <laughs> uh, to do this kind of work and to get the certainty around outcomes that government ultimately wants. Uh, so I think it's I think it's worth the trade off. Uh, the other point I'd make about this this slide, which you know there are variations of this, uh, with or without an intermediary, uh, with or without an investor, um, with or without an evaluator. Uh, is that the truth is, is is we should be better at this, and this is no knock on any of, of my government friends or, or anybody else that works in the public sector, uh, as I do as well. Uh, we should be better at all this, all this stuff anyway, frankly, uh, internally. We should be uh, better positioned to invest in prevention. We're just not very good at that. Uh, we should be better positioned to evaluate the effectiveness of our contracting partners but we're just not typically as good at that as we should be. Um, so, you know, we, we should have the internal capacity to do outcomes-based contracting and not rely on a third party. Uh, so all of that, in theory, could be done internal within government. Uh, but it's very, very difficult to build up the, that capacity overnight. But my hope is, is that, that as more governments get comfortable with this, the complexity goes down because it's not new anymore. And the internal capacity is there uh, to do this in the normal course and, and not outsource it to a number of different parties who just add complexity to the challenge. So, yeah, so those are, I think, a few of the most common um, perceptions about pay for success being too complicated, takes too long to set up. Um, and then, you know, the one that we actually didn't touch on, because I think it comes from a fundamental misunderstanding of pay for success, but I actually hear a surprising amount, oh, it's free money. <laughs> I'm thinking there is no such thing as free money. Uh, so those, I think, are, are quite common um, views around what might be broken within this, both on the how can we do better 
as a field to streamline this and, and move this forward, as government to be taking on some of these roles, um, as service providers to kind of know what works as well. What you think are the opportunities, I think specifically for Seattle, um, but or the Northwest uh, will expand for Ian as well, but even more broadly in the, in the field, if you're interested, like where are the opportunities to be implementing pay for success, whether that's a particular sector or a particular way of doing it or with a certain entity, however you want to take a stab at that. Not from Seattle, uh, so I can't speak to specific opportunities here in this market, um, but I can speak to a couple of, of observations uh, you have exceptional local government leadership here, which is showcased here on, on the panel. Uh, so I would encourage you to, to engage with the city and, and the county uh, around these kinds of uh, uh, project opportunities. Uh, the leadership is here. The willingness is here. The capacity is here. And that is not the case in a lot of cities. Uh, let me just say that. Um, so I think you have exceptional government leadership here. Uh, you have a pretty substantial philanthropic uh, community here, uh, given the corporations that are based here, uh, and philanthropies that have suggested that they want to do uh, innovative things in, in the social sector. So I think you, you have a real opportunity to take advantage of that. Uh, you also have a, a, a unique um, or, or relatively unusual um, Medicaid uh, setup here, um, where there is potential uh, through your Accountable Communities of Health um, network uh, there's potential to create some really interesting partnerships that address the social determinants of health uh, that Andrew spoke to uh, earlier in, in the presentation. Um, and that's actually the, the biggest opportunity I see across the field. I think that the entire anti-poverty sector, field, industry, whatever you want to call it, is going to merge with health eventually. I think that we're on the cusp, and I think it should have happened years ago. Uh, it's silly that we silo all of the community work we do over here and the healthcare work that we do over here and, uh, and don't connect the two. Uh, because we know that an investment in stable housing, for example, will have a profound effect on chronic disease uh, as well as a number of other long-term health outcomes which have significant cost savings associated with them, which would more than pay for the housing in the first place. So we need to close that loop. Uh, so I really see this connection between health and, and community development anti-poverty work facilitated through a pay-for-success kind of contract that is the future. Close your eyes for a moment and just uh, think uh, the first thing that comes to mind. What's the, um, what's the biggest problem I'd like to have resolved? Pay-for-success is an opportunity. Um, there are so many opportunities that uh, I think this raises now. Um, it does require um, all of us to start thinking differently. Um, we in government have been programmed um, around inputs and, and outputs, not outcomes. And so thinking about um, the results differently um, is going to be required um, on government side and, and um, on, in some degree all of our sides um, of how do we partner with um, um, entities to accomplish something as opposed to, um, you know, track something or... Um, um, you know, make sure that we are um, counting um, things correctly. Um, so I think that's the biggest challenge that we face, but I think that this um, model um, is susceptible to um, all of our social um, ills in one way or another. 
Um, and I think there are ways in which that can be constructed um, to get the outcomes that we want um, for the individuals that we are serving. Um, fundamentally, it is about uh, changing behavior. Um, it is about um, bringing services um, and accessibility um, and opportunity um, to a group that um, is um, in need of that for one reason or another. Um, so how we think about that differently um, will drive how the partnerships are, are developed. So in the spirit of improv, I'm going to say yes to all of that. And um, I think this room is an opportunity because right now we have the physical manifestation of interest, intrigue, um, and curiosity about this model. And I will tell you that, that our peers in, in city government hear this stuff and get a little, they kind of back up a little bit, right? Like private investment in government, like not knowing if something's gonna work. I don't know about that, right? It's, it, the, again, the, the risk profile or the, the appetite for risk is such that the voices in this room I view as an opportunity because if this is something that as a community, because again, the whole partnership model behind Pay for Success is it's not just government, it's not just the nonprofit sector, it's not, it's it's the community. So I see an opportunity for our community across sectors to get together and say, if this is something we want to see, let's make it happen. Let's talk about it. Let's put our heads together. And that can help, right, there, if, where there's a groundswell movement, that can help to sort of address some of the anxiety that I know some of my peers understandably have around this type of model, right? The first thing, I mean, when Lauren was talking about language, the first thing we used to have to say um, when we talked about social impact bonds was they're not bonds, right? Yeah. Because you would start to see our budget uh, director have heart palpitations, right? It's like, no, it's not a bond. It's not a bond. It's just something that they call they call it in the UK. We'll call it something different. Pay for success, right? But I just want to. It's not intended to be sort of um, hokey. I really do think that for those of us in the room right now, if this is something that we feel passionate about and are excited about, let's make it happen. That is the opportunity. Um, as Andrew and Ian said, there's a multitude of issues we could apply this to. Uh, let's see where there's convergence and. And start talking. Yes, to all of that as well. Um, and I would add in a in a very specific way too, because I know that we have some healthcare folks in the room. Um, echoing what Ian said, I think healthcare is a big uh, potential partner actually in most of these going forward. So at the moment, you know, we've had MCOs who have been investors in these. Um, United Healthcare invested in the LA Pay for Success deal for seven million dollars. Um, but we also have increasing interest in healthcare entities being end payers or the ones actually paying for those success metrics. We also have interest from uh, philanthropy as being the one paying for success because they realize that that might be a, a more accountable way of even developing their own philanthropic strategy, strategies as well. So I would say both of those, certainly on the healthcare and in all forms, particularly as partners, um, and just in seeing the expansion of this model. So. Uh, to be honest, while a lot of this could be done by government, it doesn't just have to be government. In fact, we could have a whole nother session talking about healthcare as end payers or philanthropy as end payers um, to see how it could affect what they do as well. Thank you for listening to Money and Meaning. We're so glad to be sharing these live events with a wider audience through this podcast. Please check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net, 
for upcoming SOCAP events, including our flagship conference, SOCAP 18, that will take place October 23rd through the 26th at the Fort Mason Center in San Francisco. And join us again next time for Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies Building New Markets for Impact. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies Building New Markets for Impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Liz Maxwell. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more about what you've heard, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us at SoCap Markets on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.